Hi, everybody. Well, uh, we just wanted to come on real quick and explain a few changes. You may have noticed uh, there are a couple changes, things happening uh, on the show. We wanted to explain to you what's going on so that uh, you're on board with us. We recently signed on with a podcast network that is going to significantly increase the the reach and the scope of our podcast. And part of that means uh, that we're going to begin to run ads on our program. Some of these we will read. Some of them will be slotted into specific places in the podcast by the podcast network itself. That's right. Uh, so we are part of Airwave Media. We're very pleased to be a part of Airwave. It's going to be great. You know, the ads that you hear, just know we don't have a lot of control over which ones they are. We have chosen broad categories to exclude, but hopefully you'll hear only ads that you like. If you want an ad-free version of the show, that's still available over on Patreon. Uh, our patrons, for now, uh, all of our patrons get an ad-free version of the show. Otherwise, thanks for uh, being with us, and, and, and we're excited about this opportunity. And... Here's the show. This is a case of someone trying to leverage the authority of the Bible to give permission to their specific group of followers to be monsters because he knows they want to be monsters and and they want Jesus's blessing and you don't have Jesus's blessing to be a monster. No. Hey everybody, I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we try to increase the public's access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. And today we're going to be doing some of said combating, aren't we, Dan? Oh my gosh. Uh, this is going to be... This is going to be some fun combating. We're, we're, <laughs> Rhetorical we're, combat, we're, just to be clear. I'll tell you what, we're going after Jordan Peterson, friends. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, you know, you don't want to bury the lead on this one. <laughs> uh, the, the second half of our show, we're coming for you, JP. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how, how good a job he does. Yeah. Because uh, he has been wading around on your turf. Uh, I gotta say, there is some trampling of uh, of my purview. Yeah, uh, that uh, that has occurred, um, yeah. and uh, I'm not happy about it. So, yeah. but gonna... before that, let's do a chapter and verse. Excellent. And uh, what chapter and what verse shall we uh, engage? Well, we're going to probably talk about a couple chapters and definitely several verses. Uh, we're going with Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Which, uh, which I, I recently learned mm -hmm. is a word. I never knew what that word meant. I had always heard it in reference to the Sermon on the Mount, but I didn't know what Beatitude meant. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have uh, a thing called Wikipedia that hey. is very useful. Yeah. And, I, I, and it turns out that it's, uh, it's from the Latin Vulgate, uh, the word blessings uh, or, or, or blessed uh, that begins each of these uh, little verses is beati uh, in the Latin, mm -hmm. uh, which which means that, that plural adjective. Yeah. But I got to say, I'm disappointed with something, which is that in the original Greek, it's it's makarioi. Mm -hmm. And the, it, it is a missed opportunity that these are not the makarioids. That's all I'm saying. Well, um, some scholars refer to them as uh, macarisms. Oh, okay. So that is that is like, an English word. <laughs> I feel like sayings that you say should be should be mac <laughs> mac somethingisms. Anyway, well, I get I get uh, Danisms is what uh, is what yeah. I've heard. But um, there you go. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount as a as sort of a as a sermon is kind of unique uh, in form and in content mm -hmm. for Jesus. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah. We, there's only one gospel in which we have what we know formally as the Sermon on the Mount, and that is the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we have a lot of parallel comments in Luke chapter six in a, a sermon, which is generally referred to as a sermon on the plain. So, um, so it you is got not... the flat sermon and you got the bumpy sermon. You got what you got. <laughs> well, I, I was going to go in the direction of he's lecturing folks who are sitting in first class. Um, but <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, he's a uh, uh, sermon on the mount. We don't know where 
if this actually happened, I, I think most scholars would say the exact words that we see in Matthew are a literary product and not a reflection mm -hmm. of an actual single historical event. Um, but if something like this happened, uh, it probably would have been uh, somewhere in the north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, as you and I will see next year, uh, there is a church oh. um, that is uh, set up uh, on up high on a hill overlooking the northwest shores of uh, the Sea of Galilee that is traditionally associated with the location of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, a gorgeous area, a uh, very peaceful and relaxing place to go contemplate uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But it is... Uh, it and, is and like all of the places in, uh, in and around that area... Uh, that church is very surely exactly where this <laughs> this historical event may or may not have happened. It's actually not a very old church. It is um, it's fairly recent, but there was a Byzantine era church that's a little further down the hill. But yeah, um, pretty much everything uh, in the land of Israel that you see is either something that was identified in the fourth century CE or was identified in the Byzantine era or in um, the uh, Crusader area. Uh, so, yeah, there's not a ton that goes all the way back to the first century CE, and certainly not this location. Because the text, all it says is, there was his mount. And they, right. He was on the mount. And turns around and starts addressing everybody. Uh, and what we have here are, um, the Sermon on the Mount is the larger um, sermon, that is, it's kind of summing up what Jesus's followers thought were essential for uh, disciples to know. So like mm. if, if you had to take the whole Jesus movement and say, if you became a disciple of the Jesus movement in the first, second century CE, what was like your intro packet? Um, <laughs> what did you need to know about being a disciple? The Sermon on the Mount is is kind of the distillation of here's okay. what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. And, um, and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, uh, some scholars have argued that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is aimed at uh, a more Jewish social setting, whereas the Sermon on the Plain in Luke might be aimed at a more Gentile setting. Oh, uh, Greco-Roman setting. And so one theory is that this was kind of the uh, the intro to Jesus' discipleship before the Gospels were written down. And so the Gospel authors, Matthew and Luke, or at least whoever wrote those Gospels, whom we traditionally attribute to Matthew and Luke, took that, that little package up and kind of wove it into their narrative and said, we're going to take this little primer on being a disciple and we're going to make it something that Jesus shared um, with uh, the followers. And so the opening segment, the, um, the exhortation at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount contains our Beatitudes. Um, so this runs from Matthew 5.3 all the way down to uh, Matthew 5.12. So not a long segment. Yeah, and and this is the part where, uh, I mean, each of these has a sort of a standard form where it says, blessed are the blank and the reason that they're blessed. Right. Uh, the, the, so it's, it's, it's a very, it's a kind of almost a, a call and response or it's, it, it's a standard form that he goes yeah. throughout each of these, uh, these beatitudes. And this is, and this is not original to the gospels in the sense that that this formula of blessed are because long pre-existed the New Testament goes back to Plato and even before. We see this in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. So in the Greek, uh, the word is, uh, you pronounced it makarioi, that's following the Erasmian pronunciation. In modern Greek, it would be makarii. Um, but this is a translation of the uh, Hebrew term um, asrei, which also means happy slash blessed. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we see in, in places like uh, Psalm uh, 128.1, I think, blessed are those who, uh, who trust in the Lord or, or something like that. And so this kind of two-line 
statement couplet that uh, that begins with blessed are or blessed is and then goes on to explaining why is something that goes way back. And um, there's an interesting distinction. Sorry, I just wanted to dive to drill down on one thing that you said, which yeah. is that there's a difference between blessed are and happy are. In my mind, the, the they could be uh, they could mean the same thing. But also the word blessed, blessed could be, could contain a sense of um, a, a subject object sort of thing. Like there's a blesser and right. those who become blessed by that blesser. Yeah. Whereas you don't need that relationship with the idea of happiness. Like you're happy because of the thing and not because. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if that's explored at all in the, uh, in this or, or, if that's meaning a meaningful distinction um, for this to be blessed versus happy, yeah, the concept it's it's like fortunate, happy, privileged, okay, and so that bleeds into the idea of being favored, divinely favored, blessed. So sure. it certainly includes this kind of transitive property that this is something right. being bestowed upon you, but not necessarily. And so uh, that's that's open for. Uh, some interpretation, I would argue. Um, okay. And so that's why it's a little difficult to uh, to translate, but uh, blessed has become traditional, and so that's how most translations go about it. But you could say fortunate, you could say happy, um, but uh, yeah, blessed is is uh, most popular, and, and the idea is that these blessings are bestowed by God, but I don't think that's necessarily inherent in the in the text itself. Uh, but we see this in, um, in Egyptian literature. We see this in Jewish wisdom literature. We see this in Greek literature. Uh, we see it in a number of different places. So they did not innovate it for the New Testament. Rather, they picked up this literary device, this literary genre, and said, we're going to represent uh, this introduction to uh, Jesus' discipleship using this very popular, very famous, very widespread um, piece of nomological uh, literature. Um, this, is, this is Jesus's version of partic- participating in a TikTok trend. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Uh, one okay. that had been going on for several centuries. Um, okay. And we can only hope that TikTok will go on for several centuries. Um, <laughs> or not, one or the other. <laughs> um, and so they're basically trying to distill down essential positions and doctrines in the briefest, the shortest possible form. And one thing I want to point out is that these are focusing on divine justice. These are focusing on what is right and what is just uh, in the world. And so there's a close relationship with morality, with ethics, uh, this is supposed to heighten your ethical awareness and make people think about social justice, divine justice, cosmic order, and their place within all of that. Yeah. All Unless right. you're Jordan Peterson, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so, so should we just go through them? Yeah, let's, uh, let's go with the first one. Um, so verse verse three starts with, uh, and it's translated uh, in. I think I think what I've got here is King James. Uh, okay, but it says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Exactly, and um, this is paralleled in Luke, only it does not have the addition of "in spirit." Mm. Uh, it just has, uh, "Blessed are the poor." Uh, well, that's two very different things. Yes, it is uh, two very different things. Blessed, <laughs> um, let me see. This is Luke 6, verse 20. Mm. And it says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So in addition to uh, leaving out the in spirit, it's also a second person rather than a third person okay. statement. Now, yeah. um, a lot of people try to make a big deal out of poor in spirit, as if this is only referring to kind of a, uh, a, a psychological disposition and not to uh, an economic, socioeconomic status. I think the fact that Luke takes it one direction, Matthew adds the in spirit, indicates that there's a relationship going on here. 
And uh, and we actually see this phrase elsewhere in Jewish literature. In fact, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's in Hebrew, uh, where we have the phrase anvei ruach, which means oppressed in spirit or mm. poor in spirit. Uh, and so this is basically translating from Hebrew this concept of of poor in spirit, which is not, which can be a reference to humility, but can also refer to uh, socioeconomic status. And so the the scholarship that I've seen on this has suggested that this is an invitation to recognize the uh, the depraved state of the human condition that mm. we are there's poverty there is misery there is suffering uh and so the the one who is poor in spirit may be socioeconomically poor but is also one who just recognizes the low state of uh the human condition and recognizing that is important to understanding one's life in other words you need to recognize the poor state of the human condition in order to have uh, a foundation for uh, living an ethical life. Yeah, I got to say, adding the in-spirit feels like it makes it a much more nebulous concept. It becomes much trickier. It, it is. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think the idea here is is not just like a kind of constitutional, here's a precise little datum but it is to some degree an invitation to contemplate these things. But it is, at the same time, what the Beatitudes are doing is kind of overturning the conventions of the time regarding uh, success in life. Um, mm. and, and having said that, I have to think of Conan the Barbarian, what is best in life? Um, Jesus might, <laughs> instead of uh, saying to... Uh, you know the the quote uh, says, "Well, to be poor in spirit." That's kind of the opening salvo, and it says, "For theirs is the kingdom of heaven," which overturns expectations. It's not the powerful, it's not the wealthy, it's not the haughty, it's not the people who rule things here who will rule in the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven overturns those expectations, and it's. I feel like Jesse uh, Falwell and Joel Osteen would have. Would would have some truck with this concept? Yeah, yeah. This rather undermines the prosperity gospel uh, yeah. because it is. I I think it is expanding the scope beyond just socioeconomic uh, poverty, but it definitely includes the socioeconomic poverty. And so the idea is, the the real philosopher kings in the kingdom of heaven are those who recognize that we are all in a pitiful. Uh, state and that the human condition is um, the baseline is a uh, one of poverty, socioeconomic, moral, and other types. So, um, so we're starting off strong. We yeah. are hitting the ground running, and uh, the next one is going to kind of uh, move in an, in an orderly fashion to. Uh, those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We have a Hebrew Bible parallel to the transition from the poor in spirit to those who mourn, and that's in Isaiah oh. 61. And okay. um, it says here, um, so the first three verses say, The Spirit of, the, of Adonai God is upon me, because Adonai has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed. And this, this is that word that's... Um, can also be uh, translated poor. So, uh, anav, anve ruach, poor in spirit, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim, proclaim the year of Adonai's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So, we're following kind of the, the order of operations that we see in Isaiah 61. So, this is not haphazard, this is not random. Uh, but the author of Matthew is putting these together in an order that would resonate with folks who know the Jewish scriptures. Um, and the idea here is uh, that if poverty is kind of uh, one of the features of the human condition in general, the next one after that would be grief. People mm. are poor, people are suffering, people are oppressed— and then people grieve uh, because death is also a natural part uh, of everything. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I think that there's a... It is an interesting uh, opening, as you say, to to this concept, which is uh, we're starting off with a rejection of, like you say, the wealthy and the powerful and, and those who, you know, all the people who are sort of at the top of what you might consider a, a sociological pyramid of sort of who, who has it easy, who's happy. Uh, th- those people are not the ones uh, that are being celebrated here or that are being blessed here. Right. Which I think is fascinating. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the second clause in the, the second beatitude, for they will be comforted, um, that's what we have there in Isaiah 61. Right. That uh, the spirit of Adonai God is upon me to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. So this can have to do with personal loss, with death, but it's also about the loss of the land. Um, It is about uh, the uh, oppression under a larger empire. So the mourning can take different shapes, but God is there to comfort those who mourn. Um, And so what is unexpected is what the kingdom of God is all about, the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven will be theirs, those who mourn. Turns out they're going to be comforted. And and this has kind of contemporary application, but there's also uh, an eschatological perspective. It's also saying this is what's coming in the future when God comes and the end times are here. Uh, Basically, those who are, um, you know, kind of under the boot of what society accepts as as happiness as as a blessed state uh should be happy should be blessed and in the end times that's when everything's going to be overturned and they're going to receive the recompense uh and they're going to be shown to be the ones who are truly happy they're going to be shown to be the ones who will be comforted who will um who will rule in the kingdom of heaven and then we get to verse five, blessed, <laughs> which we will have some contention with later. Yeah, uh, yeah, in the in, later in the show. But for right now, yeah, it's yes. it's ble- blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Yes. Uh, talk 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 first about the the word that is used there uh, for meek, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, yeah, it is interesting because we've already had an inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. We know who's inheriting that. Yeah. Now we're inheriting the earth, which I find a little confusing because it feels <laughs> like up until now, what we've been talking about is like after in a sort of in a later time, you get a thing. Uh, why why are the meek inheriting the earth? Well, uh, and what's going on there? This this is something that is uh, debated by some scholars, but uh, in the Gospels. The uh, what's coming, this promised salvation, is not necessarily about flying into the sky to live 
in the clouds. It's actually something that's going to be on earth. And there's an argument to make that the kingdom of heaven, that the, the gospel authors are kind of presenting the kingdom of heaven is already here in some sense. And, and in mm. the history of Christianity, there are folks who have interpreted the kingdom of heaven as, as underway, as, as having arrived on earth. So, mm. uh, the kingdom of heaven and earth are kind of different sides to, uh, the same coin. Um, but we are talking about, uh, uh, the earth itself, there are debates about, does this mean political kingdoms? Does this mean the land? Uh, what does this mean? It's, I mean, the, the text doesn't really give us uh, a lot of help there. However, this is a quote from an Old Testament passage. This oh, okay. Is, this is Psalm 3611, but it's being quoted from the uh, Greek translation, which is uh, in the Septuagint, it's Psalm 37. The Septuagint has an additional psalm, and so. Okay. Um, but in thirty-seven eleven, we have that same word that is used for the poor in Hebrew, anav, uh, which is the oppressed, really. But it can also mean the humbled, and so uh, the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, translates, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And it's oh, I think I I think I flipped the versions. It's thirty seven eleven in the in the Hebrew and in most English translations. It's thirty six oh eleven gosh. in the Dan, Septuagint. Dan, get your act together. Uh, will I, the the uh, debunking Dan TikTok account I think needs to. Um, I'm calling on the sock puppet uh, to uh, correct me there. Um, but so, uh, when this is translated into Greek, they use this word prais, uh, which means gentle, which means humble, which means meek. It's not the, um, the word that they translate in the other parts where we talk about, um, poor in spirit. That's a different Greek word. So the, the interpreters of this Psalm are understanding this to refer to somebody who is gentle, humble, meek, and, uh, the idea here is is basically again overturning those expectations. It's not the proud, it's not the arrogant, it's not the violent. It's the ones who are gentle, who are calm, who are reserved, who are meek, who will be the ones to inherit the earth, whether that is a reference to political kingdoms or geographical regions or whatever. So once again, what's expected is being overturned, and this is supposed to allow believers to reflect on their current existence, to feel better about perhaps being in a position where they really don't really have any power, uh, but just accepting that and being gentle and kind and meek is how they can kind of um, generate a sense of contentment, of happiness. And we see this in, in philosophical treatises as well um, around this time period, talking about how kindness, gentleness, meekness is the sign of someone who has, um, has their crap together, has a real uh, grasp of um, ethics. Yeah. Okay. We'll get a counterpoint to that in the second <laughs> half of the show. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at the rest of, of Psalm 37, it says, The wicked shall be cut off. Those who wait for Adonai shall inherit the land. Uh, yet a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently for their place, they will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So even this psalm is kind of talking about when the Lord comes, they're going to overturn things, and the proud and the powerful are going to be. <laughs> Keep thinking of pseudo Spanish words like echard. Um, no, they're going going to be um, kicked out, and it is the meek, the ones who uh, are humble, who are going to take over. Man, we we already have like Latin and Greek and and Hebrew here. We don't don't bring <laughs> Spanish into the mix. We, we're, we're already too confused here. <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, moving on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Yeah. And and here we have another uh, kind of a further development of this uh, idea that this is recognition of the sad state of the human condition. If you are poor in spirit, if you are mourning, if you are meek, then you're going to recognize that there is unrighteousness all around you, and it's going to hurt it's going mm. to leave you wanting righteousness. And so we have this concept of hungering and thirsting after righteousness as a result of 
the human condition. And I want to go to, to Luke here, actually. So in Luke 6, this follows after the blessed are the poor uh, in the Sermon on the Plain. Luke 6, 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Uh, mm. And so in Luke, again, we're going away from kind of the, uh, the Matthean poor in spirit, hunger and thirst after righteousness, and we're back to kind of a more corporeal, kind of immediate, those who, who have hunger, uh, a more specific hunger for food. Uh, for you Re- will be filled. Remind me which uh, which ma- between Matthew and Luke, which one do we think was written first, and which second? Um, so uh, Mark is first of all the all the Gospels, and then I think I am of the opinion that Matthew uh, comes before Luke. But okay. it's not that they were like Matthew wrote his, and Luke was like has Matthew and says, "Well, I'm going to improve upon this." It's <laughs> that um, Matthew is writing using Mark as a source, but also using other sources. And then Luke is writing probably a few decades later, um, a few years to a few decades later, and they have Mark and they have Matthew, but they also have their own independent sources. And so they're probably pulling these things um, from other sources rather than just kind of directly piggybacking on uh, what Matthew is saying. So it could be that Luke is preserving an earlier version of this. It could be that Matthew has uh, editorialized where maybe they both had the this manuscript that said, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger. And Matthew was like, mm, I can do better than this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Right. Uh, there are arguments uh, about that. Um, we don't have near enough data uh, to say much more than could be one way, could be the other, I would I would suggest. I wanted to hit on something with this uh, with, with this verse six, with the hunger and thirst for righteousness yeah. or after righteousness thing, because I think you mentioned it. It's very clear, like the the following thing, that they will be satisfied makes it seem pretty clear that this isn't hunger and search, thirst for righteousness in themselves, but rather those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in the world right. and don't find it. Right. Uh, and then and then finally, you know, we'll be eventually satisfied that, you know, everybody got their comeuppance or whatever it yeah. is. But it doesn't, it's, yeah, I think that's fascinating that it's not about like those who try to be righteous, but rather those who are out there wishing that everybody else was righteous. I think I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of folks think that when they talk about righteousness that it has kind of a modern legalistic sense mm. that righteousness is like right behavior. And uh, in the New Testament we are incorporating some Greek philosophical frameworks. It's not um, uh, it's not directly uh, unmediated from uh, ancient Israelite concepts, but in the ancient Israelite world righteousness was a state of affairs where righteous meant that people were fulfilling their role and there was harmony. There was uh, social, the, there was social order, there was cosmic order. And so... Uh, is there a sense of justice in that? Absolutely. As well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, like I said earlier, this, is, this has a lot to do with divine justice. And in the Hebrew Bible, you have this idea that God is there to uphold cosmic justice and then social justice and cosmic justice are intertwined. And if mm-hmm. one um, is out of sync, then it will throw the other out of sync as well. And so social justice was um, these ideas that, you know, you've got to provide for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the oppressed. You've got to make sure that they're not going through too much suffering because if the imbalance is too great— then that's when everything gets thrown out of whack. And and so, you know, earthquakes and floods and disasters and invasions and these kinds of things are in in some ways conceptualized as the natural consequences of the social order and the justice of society being thrown out of whack. And so like in the laws of Hammurabi, you have um, the kings are kind of viewed as, as uh, the deity's mediator on earth. It's their job to implement the deity's will. 
And mm-hmm. so to the degree that they uphold justice they are um, and righteousness, they are performing their duties well. So in the laws of Hammurabi, you have Hammurabi starting off saying, you know, I'm look at me, I'm awesome. I maintain the rights of the widow and of the poor. And I did, I'm doing all these things. And then you can look throughout all of the laws and you never find any law about the poor or the widow that's actually like serving their interests. That was kind of a uh, social justice was kind of the canary in the coal mine of cosmic justice. And so if you saw it getting out of whack, you knew that uh, something bad was going to happen. So when they're looking for um, thirsting after uh, righteousness here, you're exactly right. It's not in themselves. They're searching after a state of affairs that is in alignment with God's righteousness. And it's not going to be fulfilled until the eschaton, the end times. It's the the second coming. It's the institution of the kingdom of God that is finally going to achieve a uh, a state of affairs that can be called righteous. Well, if if there if anything in this book can be said to be prophetic, I would say that two thousand years later, we have still not achieved <laughs> a, an, a just order to society. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll give Even, it to them. <laughs> and um, and and these days, we're we're still trying to s- the same old tact, a same old approach of saying the wealthy need more power and money. <laughs> then everybody else will, um, everything will fall into place magically for everybody else. For some reason, it still hasn't worked. But the, um, the justice trickle down theory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not it, <laughs> trickle it down righteousness. Yeah, yeah. It hasn't, <laughs> that hasn't um, played out any better than the economic version. No, 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 no. It is a uh, uh, epic fail. Uh, in yeah. the parlance of our times. In the- <laughs> <laughs> and then um, at the uh, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, verse 33, we have this, uh, this statement. Uh, in the NRSV, we have, But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So the this idea of God's righteousness is kind of the pinnacle of of um, what discipleship is about. You're trying to bring about a state of righteousness yeah. uh, across the board. Okay, I like that. Uh, and then uh, we we get to another an, another one that I'm pretty fond of. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Yeah, this is okay. uh, and. The the word here for um, for mercy is uh, is a pretty generic one in Greek, but uh, in Hebrew, Chesed is uh, is a word that it's translated sometimes mercy, sometimes grace, sometimes loving kindness. Uh, but the idea behind it is to um, extend basically to extend aid who to someone who is unable to help themselves. Uh, when it's not even required of you. So from uh, the point of view of the law, you know, there are certain things that you're required to do. You have rights, you have duties. But when you see someone in need and you are not required by the law to help them, but you do it anyway, that is a biblical notion of mercy. Uh, That is extending uh, grace extending mercy when it's not required, and so when we we see talk about grace and mercy in particularly in the Hebrew Bible, but also in the New Testament, it's the idea that someone is helping someone else when they're not obligated to, which interestingly enough was an obligation within ancient Judaism. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, yeah. here's the law. <laughs> also, you have to go above and beyond the law. Um, yeah, you are, you are, you're, you're still not off the hook. Yeah. And I assume that that, that version of mercy, that sort of loving kindness, uh, generosity idea of mercy is how we are meant to understand the first part of the sentence as well. Blessed are the merciful. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that version of, of what mercy means, uh, applies to both of those instances. Absolutely. So it's basically the what first- you... What you send out into the universe, you will get back, provided it's it's mercy, provided it's yeah. that grace. Which is interesting because this is the first time that uh, what you what you are what you give is what you get. And the rest of these, yeah. it's been you know you if you are if you are this, then you get this other thing. Yeah, and now you you get it uh, reflected. You get this mercy reflected back to yourself. Yeah, and and we have elsewhere in the gospels the idea that. 
the more you forgive, the more you will receive forgiveness. So there's there's a reciprocity uh, to the concepts of forgiveness and mercy. But yeah, and and this uh, puts the lie to the argument that you know the particularly the Christian gospel, but but uh, any part of your responsibility to a, a biblical law where like this is what's written and that's all I'm responsible for. The reality is um, if you're really fulfilling it, it's <laughs> it's a pieces of flair thing. Um, <laughs> if you really if you really internalize and believe in it, you'll want to wear more pieces of flair. <laughs> Look. 12 is the minimum, okay? <laughs> but we hope that you'll want to do more, and we encourage that. Yeah, well, why don't you just make the minimum more? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're not understanding. All right, <laughs> let's move on. So the next one is, uh, blessed are the pure in heart, Yeah, for, th- for they will see God. I like this one. This is a really cool one. Now, a lot of people don't see the connection here, but, uh, but pure in heart, the purity, the concept of purity in the New Testament and ancient Judaism had to do with cleanliness. And cleanliness had to do with uh, the ability to enter God's presence. So uh, ritual instruments and ritual actors had to be cleansed, had to be purified both ritually and physically so that they could enter into the sacred spaces, which were cleansed so that God's presence could dwell there. And so uh, pure in heart is uh, someone whose heart is clean and uh, and pure. And we have this Psalm, uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Uh, who shall ascend the hill of Adonai, and who shall stand in his holy place? And the holy place is the temple, which is ritually and physically purified for the divine presence. Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from Adonai and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And I am of the opinion that this has reference to an ancient commandment that uh, is found in places like Deuteronomy 16 and 16 and elsewhere, where all the males of Israel were commanded three times a year to go up to, and and most translations will say, appear before God. And uh, if you look in the Hebrew, the word therefore appear is a little odd because it is the verb for to see, but it is vocalized. In other words, the vowels that were added to it in the medieval period based on earlier traditions of how to vocalize the text have it um, in the passive, so be Hmm. seen. So we have the consonants that say, see the face of God, and we have the vowels that were added that say, appear before the face of God. And so... Hmm. I and other scholars have argued that uh, what we have here was originally a commandment to go into the temple to see the face of God. And that was that became theologically problematic. And so a tradition that read the verb in the passive uh, became normative. And so now we read it as uh, appear before God. But you see it as well in, in Isaiah 1, uh, verse 12. Uh, when who commanded you to trample my courts when you come to, and if you translate it up here before me, it just totally muddles up the Hebrew because the Hebrew is very clearly when you come to see my face is what it says in the Hebrew. So, and that became problematic just because, I, I mean, I know that there are scriptures that say, if you see God's face, you'll die or if you... you yeah, that's that's things. Exodus thirty three twenty where Moses says, show me your glory and God says... No, um, and says uh, no. No human can see me. Or the text says no human can see my face. Um, or no, you you can't see my face because no human can see me and live. And this is the idea that the face of God is so brilliant and so shiny that it would kill you. Um, and so uh, God says, "I'm going to put my hand over your face. I'm going to walk by. Then I'll take my hand away. You're going to see my butt." But you will not see my face. Um, and the text says my back. But uh, backside is, is uh, I think, a better translation. Um, okay. I'm only kind of joking. Um, and so 
the there was this idea that God was so brilliant and shiny that it would kill you to look directly at God. It was like the sun. You can't look at the sun or, or you know, um, you hurt your eyes like I did when I was like eight years old. Uh-huh. Um, and so the, but if you are purified, if you are pure in heart, if you have that cleanliness, then you can withstand the, uh, what is called the beautific vision, which we see in Psalms, uh, where they're talking about longing for the face of God, um, which is something that you can, if, if that ancient tradition is what I think it is, is something that you can only experience when you go into one of the temples, um, which don't exist anymore uh, in the land of Israel. So I, I would argue that uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God is, is a reflex, is an echo of this ancient idea that you went into the temple to see God's face or to be in God's presence. All right. That's cool. Uh, all right. Moving on to blessed are the peacemakers, uh, for they will be called the sons of God. Or, or uh, cheesemakers or just any kind yes, of dairy exactly. I think you said cheesemakers. <laughs> or, or is it the peacemaker, which is the, the, the pistol that no. was called the peacemaker? <laughs> Yeah, blessed are the peacemakers. There, there are arguments about if this has a religious dimension or a political dimension, but that division didn't exist anciently. You, mm. That is something that was created uh, between uh, the medieval period and, and the Enlightenment. Uh, so, uh, wait, explain explain the two the 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 division that you're talking about. So, um, when we talk we talk about religion and politics as like two separate social categories or, or dimensions. And so we could, we will label stuff as religious and other stuff as uh, secular or political or, or something like that. And that division was not a division that they recognized anciently. That is a creation right. of the Renaissance Reformation and Enlightenment. And there's a, um, there are a couple of really good books that talk about this, how there was a time when there was no such thing as the concept of religion or secularity, the secular. Uh, one good book is uh, Brent Nongbri, Before Religion. Another one is William Cavanaugh, The Myth of Religious Violence, that talk about the history of the development of the concept of religion. So those who say, is peacemakers a religious concept or a secular slash political concept, that's that division didn't exist in the first yes, century. Yes, it is those things. <laughs> so, so the answer is yes. Um, uh, but notice, okay, peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Children of God is a title that we see in the Hebrew Bible, B'nai Elohim in, in Hebrew. Uh, they're represented as kind of problematic beings in Genesis 6 uh, and elsewhere. But by the time of the New Testament, there's another sense that has developed, which is related to the notion that Israel is God's son, and then when we get into Christianity, we have, for instance, in the Gospel of John, this idea that uh, those who believe in Jesus will become the children of God. Uh, and the idea is basically you're adopted into God's family. And so the way to uh, achieve alignment with and incorporation into God's family is to be peacemakers. So once again, we have this reflection on the poverty-stricken, miserly state of the human condition, and we want to try to improve things by being peacemakers. Yeah, which is an interesting take, uh, considering that, at very least, a, a, a significant amount of this book is not about peace. Uh, so, so yeah, it's nice. It's nice that we've now turned to uh, to peacemaking as a virtue. And and this is one of the reasons. Um, a lot of people understand the Gospels to have been brought together from disparate traditions. Mm. They're not perfectly uh, consistent internally. Indeed. Um, all right. Blessed are those who are persecuted uh, because of righteousness, mm-hmm. for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I feel like we've already given the kingdom of heaven away, but that's okay. Well, this is this is uh, not irrelevant because we start off with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we've come back to theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what's known in literary circles as an inclusio. So mm. it, it basically bookends our sense unit. So we start yes. off talking about kingdom of heaven. We end with the kingdom of heaven and we bring up the righteousness again. Uh, right. Those We have those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So... Um, one of the problematic features of seeking a better world for everyone and recognizing the pathetic state of the human condition 
is that in so doing, you in in pursuing that better life, uh, that uh, righteousness, you will receive persecution, um, and that's something that people can recognize today. Everyone who who goes out to try to uh, improve the state of affairs around them, not just for themselves or not just within themselves. Um, persecution of some kind is inevitable, and and anciently that persecution was a lot more organized and was a lot more harmful as well. And so here, yeah, we- I I feel like there's a whole thing here of like I I feel like this is a dangerous uh, scripture, this particular one, just because I see so many people using this scripture as you know, and 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 saying that. Their version of righteousness, meaning their dogma, their uh, their series of rules, particularly pertaining as they pertain to you know marginalized groups, the LGBTQ group mm-hmm. uh, uh, segment of society, etc. They use this to say, "Oh, when when people get mad at me for doing this, it's fine. I'm being persecuted uh, for my righteousness, but." I'll be, you know, I'll gain the kingdom of heaven for doing it. Yeah. How how do we differentiate between <laughs> what is good righteousness uh, that that it's okay to be persecuted for, and what is you just being a dick and uh, <laughs> and and uh, other people calling you out not being persecution, but being just you being called out for being a dick? It feels like it's a tough. It's not clear. Well, if if we take the Beatitudes as as kind of culminating in this statement, look mm. at the prerequisites. Is this someone who is poor in spirit, who mourns, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts, thirsts after righteousness, who is merciful, who is pure in heart, is a peacemaker? If it's not these things, then um, you know it's, it's quite a fallacy to say if you're uh, if you're righteous, you'll be persecuted. Therefore, everyone who is persecuted is righteous. That is. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> that is a logical fallacy. Um, that is a yeah. That's that's a hell of a modus ponens or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the name of the exact fallacy, my, but my um, logic class or whatever. Yeah, we've got a uh, we've got kind of a development, uh, a trajectory from the most elementary of the virtues, humility, all the way up to the the highest form of virtue, and that is being persecuted for uh, the sake of righteousness. So I think the the beatitudes are culminating in this, uh, and then uh, we have that inclusio that kind of bookends the two statements, and then the last two things, the last two verses here, uh, change from third person plural blessed are uh, those to second person plural. Now we're shifting. We've, we've got our Beatitudes, and we're kind of closing, uh, we're tying the ends off. Uh, so Matthew 5, 11, and 12 say, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, which kind of just capitulates everything and says yes. this This is the, the ultimate um, kind of uh, recompense for what we're doing, for seeking after the kingdom of heaven. And so just know that you are blessed if you experience all these things. You can do all these things, and you can be beatituded, you can be blessed, <laughs> but you're also, going to, um, you're also going to be persecuted because of it. But well, remain I, faithful. You know, I think, uh, I think that's great. You know, we mentioned the possibility that this could be misinterpreted no, I think not it's possibly. time. Okay. <laughs> I think it's time that we uh let's take a, a brief break and then we're gonna get to one of the most impressive misinterpretations I think I've ever seen in my life. Let's stick do around. It. All right, let's see it. Well, here we are. Uh we we've gotten through all of these wonderful beatitudes. We've talked we've talked about how being poor in spirit, how being uh, kind and gentle and a peacemaker. These are all the things that the Beatitudes are telling us we should be. Uh, we mentioned that that meek one was going to be uh, highlighted. This is Jordan Peterson, uh, who, if you don't know who he is, congratulations. If <laughs> you, you have do one know, life. <laughs> if you do know who he is, you may not be aware of the fact that his expertise is he is a psychologist. 
Um, to my knowledge, he has no particular uh, expertise in biblical studies or uh, ancient languages of any kind. But boy, that doesn't stop him. You. So uh, this is him on the Joe Rogan show, another non-expert, decidedly so. Uh, a man who uh, is a comedian and also very into um, mixed martial arts uh, fighting. So let's see what those two have to say about a beatitude, shall we? I read this New Testament line, well, decades ago, and I, I could never understand it. It's the line is, the meek shall inherit the earth. And I thought, there's something wrong with that, that line. It just doesn't make sense to me. Meek just doesn't seem to me to be a moral virtue. And so I did a series of biblical lectures this year, like 15 of them, and that was also a weird little experience that we can talk about. But I was looking through the these these sayings, these maxims, and that was one of them, the meek shall inherit the earth. But I've been using this site called Bible Hub, and it's very interesting. It's very, it's organized very interesting. So you have a biblical line, and then they they have like three pages of commentary on each line. And so because people have commented on every verse in the Bible, like to the to degree that's almost unimaginable. So you can look and see all the interpretations and all the translations and get some sense of what the gen, genuine meaning might be. And the line, the meek shall inherit the earth, meek is not a good translation or the word has moved in the 300 years or so, 300 years or so since it was translated. What it means is this, those who have swords and know how to use them, but keep them sheathed, will inherit the world. And that's mm. another thing I've been telling, yeah, no kidding, that's, that's a lot a different, man. Difference. That's a big difference. It's so great. And so like one of the things I tell young men, well, and young women as well, but the young men really need to hear this more, I think, is that you should be a monster. You know, because everyone says, well, you should be harmless virtuous. You shouldn't do anyone any harm. You should sheath your competitive instinct. You shouldn't try to win. You know, you, you don't want to be too aggressive. You don't want to be too assertive. You want to take a back seat and all of that. It's like, no, wrong. You should be a monster, an absolute monster, and then you should learn how to control it. Do you know the expression, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war? Right, right, exactly. That's exactly it. Well, that's fun. Uh, wow, JP, that's a, that's a hell of a take and feels to me very different than what we were just discussing. It does feel quite a bit different. And, and I think the, the part of this that kind of gives things away is what Jordan says at the beginning where he says that, ah, that just doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. It just doesn't seem to me that this is a moral virtue, which shows that the impetus for this is not an interrogation of the data. It's not uh, awareness of the literary and the historical and the rhetorical context. It's just, I don't like that. Right. And which shows that the point is not trying to understand the text on its own terms. The point is trying to align the text with one's own ideologies and one's own set of moral virtues, which, um, you know, may not always be that great. Um, yeah, I, I feel like he actually does us a favor in that moment because so often people do decide to impose their worldview, their sense of what how things ought to be onto these texts, but they don't give you that very yeah. clear, like uh, this, like he, he said the quiet part out loud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my said, motivation is that I don't like it. Yeah, this really bugged me. Yeah. And so I'm not going to go with whatever I think Jesus meant. I'm going to change it until it makes sense to my own worldview. Right, which is, which is something that I've said many times on my channel, um, is that people are going to read the text in ways that make it more meaningful or and or more useful to them. And here Peterson is rereading this in a way that is both meaningful and useful to him. Meaningful not only uh, because it uh, is something that aligns with his concept of moral virtue, useful because he now gets to give permission to the people who follow his ideologies to be monsters. Yeah, there he's suggesting, great... hey, Jesus wants you to be a monster. 
And, yeah. And based it's on a this- a far cry from the sunbeam that I was told to be growing <laughs> up. Yeah. And, and so this is rhetorically useful for a guy who makes his living off of slaking the anger of uh, white men who are yeah. not incredibly successful at life um, and, and think that the answer is this dude. Um, and he says that the, the, the word has shifted in, in 400 years or whatever, yeah. that this better I, translation, what were you going to say? Well, I just wanted to know, like, yeah, it, he says he has his definition, you know, that is, that involves, you know, knowing how to use your sword, but then sheathing it. Yeah. Is there anything that you can find, uh, in the various, various versions of this that you've seen that that would support that translation. Absolutely not. That's nothing. Well, here here's what's going on here. Um, this word in Greek is prais, uh, and the if uh, you have two different kind of uh, styles of Greek, you have classical Greek, which was uh, which was earlier, kind of the uh, third quarter of the uh, first millennium BCE, 400 BCE is kind of the, the what many people think uh, the pinnacle of, of classical Greek. By the time you get to the New Testament, you have what's uh, what people conventionally call Koine Greek, common Greek. This is when Greek had become the lingua franca of Southwest Asia. And this is a different style of Greek. Now, it's not the case that in classical Greek, that's what the word meant. However, in classical Greek, the word just refers to, um, here's one lexicon's entry, uh, pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Like if you have to describe in mm. general what this term is used to refer to, it's that. Gentle, humble, considerate, meek. Now, this can be used in contexts that are related to that. You might describe someone who does know how to use a sword but keeps it sheathed as meek. But the term does not include within it a reference to that. Like mm. if I, if, uh, you know, you might describe uh, like Dave Bautista is very gentle, particularly um, when it comes to dogs. Mm. But the, the word gentle does not mean a professional wrestler who loves dogs. Right. right. Like there's a context for the usage and then there's the words sense. So you get the sense from the context and absolutely nothing in the context of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount indicates we should be understanding this as a reference to the people who are meek despite being monsters. So right. that's reading other contexts into the usage here without any grounds or basis whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that the concept of meekness as it's as it's described in the Beatitudes could apply to a monster who has learned to sheathe his sword. Certainly. But that's not that's not the category we're talking about. Right. The the word itself does not include that sense in its yeah. usage. What, whatever meek like like a very a, a small withering meek person, a very uh, you know, someone who's never felt a violent impulse in their lives, the kind of person that I imagine Jordan Peterson would not consider a real man, that's also in the category. That is that is also every right. bit as much uh, contained in that category. Right. And, and I've heard people say, well, it has to refer to the people who have a capacity for violence or monsterhood who sheathe it. Because otherwise, it's just talking about the way you are, and that's not a virtue. And that's kind of an asinine argument as well, because a lot of the other things in the Beatitudes are not talking about things you choose to be. Right. Um, they're talking about things you are, whether you uh, are that way on purpose or not, whether you like yeah, being, it or not. Being in poverty is not a virtue. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, it's not a virtue that Jordan Peterson has lived up to, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and so the the argument, that, and, and that's just a rationalization. That is just, I like, that's people saying, I like what Peterson is saying because it gives me permission to be a dick. Yeah, And so I'm going to try to figure out a way to rationalize why what I like is, um, is legitimate. But yeah. just looking at the data, looking at the usage of the word prais, meek, uh, in all the different ways that it can be used, looking at 
what uh, the psalm that we're translating, who still uses anav, uh, oppressed, poor, humble. Uh, this is not someone who is a monster but knows better. And so this no, is just and, a ridiculous argument. Yeah. All you have to do is look at the rest of the word uh, of that chapter to know that that is not who we're talking about. Yeah. We are not like the, yeah, that the whole concept, it, when that video came out, when it first hit, I was shocked <laughs> genuinely. Like I've seen that man make some bizarre statements before. Usually they're just incomprehensible word salad. But in this case, he was so direct about it. I was just like, I, I think you just reinvented a whole thing. I think you just made up a bunch of stuff. So <laughs> I'm glad that you uh, that that you can confirm that for me. Yeah, yeah. This this is a case of someone trying to leverage the authority of the Bible to give permission to their specific group of followers to be monsters because he knows they want to be monsters and and they want Jesus's blessing, and you don't have Jesus's blessing to be a monster. No. Don't don't ladies and gentlemen, don't go be monsters. Yeah. We we don't need more monsters. I don't whatever your belief system, we just don't need monsters in yeah. the world. So learn to uh, be prais. Learn to not be overly impressed by a sense of your own self-importance. Learn to be gentle, humble, considerate, meek, so that you will inherit the earth. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much, friends, for tuning in to us. Uh, if you have any uh questions or comments for us you can always write into us contact at dataoverdogmapod.com also this con conversation will continue in the patrons only uh section if you would like to become a patron and uh and help to make the show go as well as get access to the uh the patrons only content you can always go to patreon.com slash data over dogma dan thanks so much for enlightening us i sure do appreciate it thank you dan and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody. Thank you.